our last summer Bible study. So you have to feed yourselves next Wednesday in your own homes. And uh, we're finishing up the life of Abraham uh, tonight. And uh, I want to let you know it is five after. So I feel completely within my rights to go to five after. Okay? You can sue me if I go to six after. It is license, yes. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. In your son's name, amen. Well, it's sort of when you get to the end of someone's life, unless it's where all the action happens, um, it's a collection of all the information that you didn't get or you need to get to round things up. All the interesting things in Abraham's life happened earlier. Uh, so a key, few key things will happen this evening. His wife will die, and he will die. Okay? Key things. Uh, a good number of years apart, um, I think she dies 127 years old. There in that first verse on the left-hand side, Sarah lived 127 years, and he was 137 when she died. He lives to 175. So he's got a chunk of change left um, to live out after Sarah's death. It says here that Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. Now Kiriath Arba is, it says, it says in the parentheses, that is Hebron. Now up to this point it has been saying the Oaks of Mamre, that is Hebron. And now it says Kiriath Arba. Now Kiriath Arba, this is the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. Um, and it may be a uh, an edit from Moses' time wanting you to inform you that Hebron, the Oaks of Mamre, is Kiriath Arba. But Kiriath Arba was the name before it was Hebron. And it means the city of Arba. Arba is the biggest giant. Okay? It said he was the greatest. Arba was the greatest or the biggest man among the Anakim. He was the father of the sons of Anak. And the Anakim, I'll give you a few references here, Joshua and Numbers, if you want to look it up. The Anakim come from the Nephilim. So the Nephilim, whatever you consider those to be, also giants. Uh, Arba was the biggest in this family, and all of the sons of Anak came from him all the way down to Goliath later on that fought uh, David uh, at this point, 700, 800 years later. Um, they all had the, this relationship. Hebron becomes occupied by the giants at some point. We, it may be this point that 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 uh, Abram and Abraham and Sarah may have been there at the time it becomes the city of Arba, um, and then over the next what's well, in the time of the conquest that Caleb drives the giants out of Hebron, and so he gets it as his inheritance, the giants all moved to Gath, where Goliath was from. So uh, this story all connects with, uh, with the giants, but just from that one mention, you don't get all that information. But it was interesting that it started to be called that here in this passage. Now this whole column on the left, and I don't want to eat up a lot of time with uh, Middle Eastern uh, negotiation. Uh, Sarah dies Abraham is a sojourner in the land. He doesn't own property. And so he needs to buy some burial property from some of the Hittites. Ephron 
uh, uh, the son of Zohar. And so they negotiate, and it's one of those very polite negotiations. Um, I would like to have that cave over there. He says, take what you want. Oh, I'd like to have that cave over there. Oh, take it, it's yours. No, but you must take some money. No, no, really, it's yours. No, but you must take some money. And he takes some money. You know, it basically, it's a overly polite um, haggling to make everyone look honorable in the situation. And this field, this place becomes the burial place of Abraham and the other patriarchs uh, later on. Um, and that's just that whole story on the left-hand side. Try as I might, I couldn't get any spiritual lesson out of that. Just when you haggle, be nice to people. So we're starting with chapter 24 here in the middle, larger type. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay? This is approximately... Um, Isaac is approximately 39 years old, 40 years old. Okay? So, it's... Sarah has died when... Let's see, she was 127... So she died when Isaac was 37. And so a couple years later, Abraham is wanting to arrange a marriage for his son. And uh, Sarah's not there anymore. And some oddities to this. You say, well, why did you put that phrase in bold? Put your hand under my thigh. Now, I don't mean to cause anyone to blush. But is basically swearing on Abraham's genitals... Uh, the oath that he's going to give. And the servant does it. Verse 9, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master. And it was basically, you know, reaching up under there and grabbing hold of uh, his posterity and uh, swearing on it. You say, well, that, that shouldn't be in the Bible. One. But it is... And it actually makes a lot of sense. We get the word through various roots. Testimony from it. I don't know if you ever gathered that. But the word testes is, in Latin, I believe, witness or something like that. But it's also the same root for testimony and uh, testicular and the like. That people in antiquity viewed you might, the oaths on certain key points, the vir virility of the father. Okay? And here it's, you, you don't, you might not, have, might have missed the lesson a, a few weeks before, but the promise to Abraham is about his posterity. When he couldn't have or didn't have Isaac and he was promised for 25 years that he would have Isaac and that he would be the father of multitudes, all this is registering with his generative powers. He's able to have kids with his concubines, but not with Sarah, and this coming through for him, and the rite of circumcision, all of this is pointing a very 
directly, not at the sort of a sexuality that was untoward, but a, the nature of the promise. Now, what's also interesting here is we think when we read, I don't want to marry one of those Canaanite girls, which I'm, I'm sure they were very nice people. He's buying property from them. He's hanging out with the, you know, Ephron, the Hittite. He's not a Canaanite, but closely, Hittites were closely related to the Canaanites. Um, variety of, of people groups, pagans. Um, and a lot of people will think, oh, he didn't want him to marry one of the bad girls locally who worshipped other gods, which may have been. But he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to go to my country and my kindred. But we learned earlier in the first night of our Bible study, four weeks ago, um, that Abraham's family were all pagans. They worshipped other gods. So he's sending his servant back to the family with the primary concern that it be family. And there's another concern that he has when he says, not one of the Canaanites. And then the servant says, in verse 5, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you come? Now that's an interesting, a lot of things are interesting there. This is, again, 18-something B.C. Um, and... Uh, it seems to be rather liberated. The girl, what if the girl doesn't want to come along? You, you sort of had this picture of people bartering camels for their women. I'm sure that happened to a certain degree. But it was really a, a, a large possessive sense of the woman's own decision about it. What if she doesn't want to come along? He doesn't say, well, grab her and run. Um, he says, well, should I take your son back to Mesopotamia? Now, what he's talking about here, and I didn't know if I was going to use the flip chart, but in case you're wondering, it goes like this. That's uh, about Sidon there, Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, um, Persian Gulf over here, because the Euphrates goes up here, and the Tigris comes down like this, and they meet down here, and so Babylon, all of this is Mesopotamia, from Carchemish and Haran all the way down to the Persian Gulf. So it's Mesopotamia means between the rivers. So the between the rivers is all the way up into Turkey, Syria. Uh, so and this is all desert out here, and so the trade routes went like this to go to Babylon. You go up and hit the river and go down to Babylon or whatever city you were heading to. So, uh, Abraham is from here. But he had moved to Haran right up here with his family before he had moved to the Promised Land. So his relatives are in Mesopotamia, but they're just right up straight north from, from Palestine. I'm sure that's completely legible. Um, Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Now that's... There's some interesting keys to his the procession of his thought or what he's communicating to his servant. And it might have something to do with the woman's 
this this leverage of no don't take him there only bring her here and he basically says if she doesn't want to come verse 8 then you must then you will be free from this oath of mine only you must not take my son back there it was don't get the girl you don't just will lose the girl but son not going there is key and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, one, they're pagans, even though they're family. But Abraham's reason that he gives is in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your descendants I will give this land. So he reminds his servant of the promise that the oath that God had made to him, the promise that he would be the father of multitudes and he would have this land, which he was currently just sojourning in, was, was key to him and he didn't want the child of the promise, Isaac, to just let that free frittered away after one generation. The promise shows up and he moves back to the land of the Hittites. So it is important to Abraham to get uh, Isaac to stay there. Secondarily, if the woman is willing to come, she's stepping into the promise. Now, we don't know how much of her own thought is about that, but she's following what the promise would be. She's staying with Isaac with the promise. The Canaanite girls, again, they might have been really nice, but they live there already. They're the ones that are going to get displaced as a people group later on. So, it's no real, if you're going to marry a pagan, you might want to have one that has expressed some eagerness, willingness to come along with and join in with what Isaac was going to be. So, the servant swears on his master's thigh, under his thigh, and... Um, and Abraham promises him, basically, he will send his angel before you. There's a degree of, not a whole big, deep degree of uh, uh, cosmology here. We've already met with some angels in Abraham's life, um, Oaks of Mamre and the like. So they un he has some understanding these emissaries of God um, is going to lead this servant. Now the rest of the story from here... Oh, down to almost, uh, the, well, the end of the chapter, is all the story of the servant. And the servant has a second generation relationship to God. He always calls God the God of my master Abraham. Now part of that may be there isn't a name for God yet. The, probably the, the most accurate thing is when he says the God of heaven in verse 7. Um, when he, the, the name the Lord which occurs here in the text I mentioned this before the name the Lord is an interpolation back from Moses day because when God tells Moses what his name is he tells him also that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did not know me by this name so there was a generic most high God supreme being sort of view uh, with a lot of polytheism around in uh, different kinds, but certain titles would float around. But the Most High, the God of Heaven, 
uh, those were um, are key. But he, he the, the the servant in his role as a servant, and he's the oldest. I was it say the oldest or the um, the oldest of his house who had charge of all that he had. So he's a he's he's got some standing. He's 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 a diplomat. He he's been there for all of this. You know he's seen it all. So he lays out before verse twelve. He goes up to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. There is another city, not Haran, but named for Nahor, uh, Abraham's brother, and uh, uh, heads off to there with a with a caravan. Uh, it says he has twenty camels. Ten, ten camels. And he lays it before God, verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me success today, I pray thee, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. That's after he's gotten to the city of Nahor, and he's standing by the well, and he lays it out in front of God. Now, some people with this, it's kind of a romantic story, but not a romantic story you don't want your father's servant going to Philadelphia and picking you out a wife this way. Okay? And you just have to marry her when he brings her back. No matter how average she is. You, do, you, you, you wouldn't do all of this. This is what was a possible in their culture and generally necessary given that you didn't have large people groups Together, you had nomadic societies. City-states were were unique places in the world, and everybody else was just moving about tribally and hanging out around oases and wells and the like. So uh, he's at this well. Nahor is not a big city, and he asked God to give him a sign, basically. And he says, "I got an idea. If a, if one of the girls coming to get water, I know they do this in the evening." Offers if I ask her for a drink, she'll give me a drink, and then she will offer to water my camels. Now, again, we can't use that kind of thing in dating today. But my father still—I uh, I referred to my wife, my current wife, uh, as a camel-watering woman, and he refers to various women as that. Whenever there is a woman who has a real servant's heart about serving the needs of the saints and he wants to recommend her to some you know senseless adult uh, he lets her know he's a camel watering woman now Rebecca shows up and it does let us know because the guys need, are losing track on this story we're going ah, do I need to be here what am I gaining from this Bible study uh, the women are liking this oh it says she was very fair to look upon okay now we're interested again now we know, okay, all right, I'm paying attention. I want to see the movie version of this. So this girl, she's fine. Now, she's probably fine and young. Because she's a virgin whom no man had known, and she wasn't fine at 35 as a virgin. Girls who were fine did not last till 35. They got married when they were 15 to 17. Now, Isaac is 40. So this is a May-December romance. Uh, developing here. He asks her the question. She has a great answer. She says, just a second, let me water your camels. And she has to run. I like the fact that it says, uh, I will draw camels for you. This is, uh, I draw camels. I will draw for your camels also. 
until they have done drinking. And she quickly emptied her water into the trough, that's verse 20, and ran to the well to draw and drew, drew for all his camels. Now we can assume maybe the camels are not parched, but camels we are legendary for putting it away. And there's ten of them. And the, uh, the guys that are traveling with the servant. Uh, so she's probably having to hoist a few gallons uh, up from the well. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's, I like this guy, I don't know, we don't know who he is. Um, it's just, this guy has got this second generation class distinction perception of God. It's the God of my master Abraham. And it's a legitimate encounter. God clearly leads him. God clearly provides. So he took the gold ring weighing half a shekel. I don't know how much that is, but it seems to suggest it's a solid chunk of change. And two bracelets for her arms. The, the ring went in her nose. He tells that in the story in the small type at the bottom, which I made small type because he just retells the story, but it lets you know that um, uh, verse 40 on the second page on the very top line, so I put the ring on her nose. So either she was already there with piercings, ready to take an extra half shekel gold ring there, or uh, they were used to that kind of courtship uh, strange men at wells putting rings in your nose. Or she was thrilled to death because she knew how much that weighed. And then she offers him housing. And it turns out she's the daughter of Bethuel, who is the son of Abraham's brother. So she's first cousin once removed from Isaac. First cousin, is that right? Uh, Bethuel and Isaac are cousins. And she's his daughter. And so that first cousin wants removed. And uh, which is better than Abraham? Because he's married to his sister. But, so things are getting a little bit more endogamous or exogamous, I guess. Um... And the man bowed his head, verse 26, and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. He's rendering this all in terms of his master's faith, his master's worship, his master's belief. He participates in it, but he understands this is not a story about him. It's a story about Abraham and God's faithfulness to Abraham. As for me, the Lord has led me all in the way of the house of my master's kinsman. So he finds, he meets uh, Re Rebecca's brother, Laban, who shows up far more described in the story of Jacob. Uh, we find out what a cad he is. He's not so much of a cad right now. He's brother of the potential bride. Finds out that she's been given all this loot. Gets excited. He comes out, hospitality, all the rest. And the guy says, I don't want you to move until I tell you the story. I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to eat. I want to tell you how this happened. I want you to know at the outset that this was remarkable, that I walked in with this idea. And he tells him the story, all the way back to what his master had said. 
so this caravan has come to town. He ha has this semi-miraculous or answer to prayer clearly represented to him. He shares the answer to prayer to Laban, and then he gives him a lot of gifts. So then they eat and they drink, and he spends the night. One night, and he says on the second side of the sheet, verse 54, 50, you have midway through 54, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me back to my master. Just a quick turnaround. I got to walk. I don't know what the mileage is here, but you're down at Hebron, which is down here southwest of Jerusalem, all the way up to here, walking, riding camels, and then one night, find the girl, perfect girl of your master's son's dreams, and uh, wants to go back. Now, this is where, just like today, you really see personalities here. His brother and her mother said, let the maiden remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Let me go, that I may go to my master. Okay, so he pushes a, this is more direct negative bargaining, unlike the, the land with the Hittite, where both were trying to politely give, you know, give to the other person. Uh, this is a little bit more, let me ask for something, a little time. Our daughter, she's young, you just showed up. It's amazing, yes, but can we have 10 days? And he says, no, you can't have 10 days. They said, verse 57, we will call the maiden and ask her. And once again, you get this, probably a teenage girl, gets given the decision. <coughs> they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those that hate them. Which probably sounded very romantic at the time. This is one of those situations where old jokes uh, from your Christian upbringing, when you're trying to be uh, worldly. When were cigarettes mentioned in the Bible? And this was sort of one. When Rebecca lit up on her camel. But we, we uh, let that one go. We won't tell that one. Now, however long it takes the journey to go back, Isaac had come from Bir Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. This is, where, this is about as romantic as it gets, folks, to deal with it. Lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she alighted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man yonder walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's been three years since his mom died. Um, and what's interesting here, you see the nature of marriage in antiquity. There's no ceremonies. There's no justice of the peace. There's no pastor and a walk in the aisle or certain vows given. It was understood. Family A had given her to that end. She gets there. 
she moves in, they have sex, it's his wife. That's the, it helps you when you're trying to define in this modern age what the nature of marriage is because you have a lot of different ideas of people suggesting wacky stuff and they want to marry the sink or something. Um, you say, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. It must be at least you figure these things out using um, these kind of slight remarks. And it's interesting that he loved her. It didn't say, they got along all right. It is not like, you say, romance didn't not exist in antiquity. They just didn't run it by romance. Okay? You didn't date, fall in love, figure out what, you know, whether or not it's going to work out, and then propose and, and have a romantic wedding. You got married, and if it were wise choices, you ended up loving your wife or loving your husband. They didn't, they just knew that it was a bad means to make a decision. Now, with that, is the last story of Abraham's involvement. Actual story. He very slightly involved. He sends him on the journey, but he's not even mentioned at the end. Except in chapter, chapter 25, verse 1, he gets married again. Like I said, he's got some years. He's got some miles. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him and he didn't have problems. Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida and Elda. Now, Abraham is populating the world. He's the father of multitudes. But one of the key things that we learn about Abraham and about the Christianity regarding Abraham is that it has to do with the promise, not with descent. Because not all physically descended from Abraham are heirs of Abraham. You see that with two generations out of the promise. Esau, Paul argues in Romans 9 that Esau and Jacob, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Both of them, Esau was older than Jacob by seconds. And it's, it, this, you keep seeing this, that Abraham has produced Ishmael, he has produced all these kids, all of them are descendants of Abraham. And if his descendants of Abraham that count, they do too. Now, you say to yourself, well, that's like the end of the story right there, verse 11. Uh, well, actually, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people, which I think is kind of... I mean, it's probably what they said about everybody, you know, but... It seems that his own thinking was keeping things with your people. We all feel that. There's sort of an ethnic pride. I'm a Scot, and you're not. And I'm, well, Sam, you are. God bless you. Any other Scots here? Okay, Neil, all right. You're allowed to live. Uh, now, other of you are other things. Al's an Armenian. 
Armenian, Armenian, both maybe. Um, so we have that natural thing. We can joke about it. We can, we can fly. I have a Scottish flag on the front of the house. Our people. I have friends who, well, I remember some of you know Tim and Stephanie. They were here for the earlier Bible studies. There's a real insistence he married a Norwegian. But she wasn't. I think she's French or something. But there is some element that we all feel about that which is our posterity, our physical descent. And that is a dangerous thing. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but you've got to have, give it the ordinate value, not the inordinate. The Jews, by the time you got down to the time of Christ, had given their descent from Abraham inordinate value. Inordinate value. Too high. Too important. You get this impression. Now, I have given you three other passages here on this page. I'm not going to go through them verse by verse because it would take too long. But I want you to um, consider what happens. There's one on the right-hand side, John 8. It's one of the most... I remember seeing it 40 years ago when I was looking at this passage. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him. Just think that's the crowd. They're the people at his Bible study. They're the people that want to listen to Jesus. They believed in Jesus. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And all of a sudden, they get their back up a little bit. Shoulders go back, and he said, what did you say about the Scots? What did you say about the Irish? What did you, you know, something, he said, I'm going to set you free. And they say, we are descendants of Abraham. And we have never been in bondage to anyone, which shows they weren't students of history. <laughs> we are descendants of, suddenly, how important it was they physically descended from Abraham and what myth they believed about themselves although they believed in Jesus Christ and all he said was why don't you listen to me continue in my word I'll set you free this is the problem with inordinate valuation of anything anything good because again it is good that I am a Scot but it's not that good some things are far more important than that and by the time I want you to know I'm going to cheat a little bit before I go down the side by the end of the passage the same people that believed in him in verse 31 want to kill him in verse 59 and they so they took up stones to throw at him and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple same group of people all because their physical descent from Abraham was landing on them at a higher level than real descent from Abraham. Now you'll look at this, and Jesus sets the ground for what St. Paul argued in Galatians and in Romans that we covered the other weeks. He says, how, how, are you, how will you set us free? He says, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. That tension, 
that Abraham was feeling about shall Eliezer of Damascus, a slave born in my house, inherit? I, I need a free son to inherit. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham. There's no arguing the point genetically. No, no need to fight over that. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, so I want you to think in terms of if any, any value is going to come to your life after looking at Abraham for four weeks. Abraham believed God. He wasn't a good man in every circumstance. But he believed God. And the places where he did believe God, juxtaposed against the places where he didn't, is teaching you about the nature of faith. And that's what the apostles wanted you to learn about Abraham's example, that his wickedness is set aside, forgiven, considered righteousness because of his faith in God. And one key thing is, my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Now Jesus knows what kind of people these are. Yes, they believed in him. Yes, they're descendants of Abraham. He already knows they're going to seek to kill him. They haven't even gotten to that point yet, and he's letting them know, you're going to try to kill me. <laughs> and so he says, you're like your father. Yes, you have a descent. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. Now, by the time this little discussion, I had to trim a number of verses out just to get it to fit on one sheet. They, first, they called him a bastard. We were not born of fornication, kind of off the rumors of Jesus not having a dad when his mom gave birth. And he says, now you're really of your father. What was that, the devil? So it got a little ugly. Um, and they, but this is all rooted in Abraham. Jews said to him, verse 52, Jews, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. So not only are you a bastard, you're a demon-possessed bastard. And he says, well, you're children of the devil. And Abraham died, as did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They know his message. The key is whether or not, like Abraham, and like Christ warned them, does the word of God find any place in you? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is your God. He wanted, didn't want to say, who is your God, whom you say is your God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I said, I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. See, the distinction that he is saying, I and Abraham are united to God in the sense that when God says something we do, we believe, we obey, we follow. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you have seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then it gets weird. Then rocks come out of their pockets because they probably carry them around. You don't think you find rocks in the temple. So they probably brought them in. Jews are always well supplied. And Jesus had to hide himself. But that key moment, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham and a few things are, are just being emptied on the Jews in the middle of their theological issues. First, you don't believe what God has said. You don't hold my words true. You think that your descent is the thing that's important. You should believe what I say. And Abraham looked forward to my day, and he saw it. Now, Abraham died in 18-something B.C., maybe late 1700s, early 1700s. And so it's been almost two millennia since Abraham died. And he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Well, this is part of Abraham, part of living in the promise of Abraham. Uh, we not only believe God and believe the promise that is offered to us, but it is the nature of the promise. His was, you'll be the father of multitudes. It was to a seed, not a plural seed. It was to one descendant, Jesus Christ. And we have been given forgiveness and life eternal. So we're not just saying it doctrinally, we have life eternal. We're setting our hope on a day that we have not yet obtained. We know that each one of us is getting old and getting sick and dying. And it's kept happening for 6,000 years. And we're just getting older and dying, each one of us. And I'll be at some of your funerals. Uh, well, maybe you'll be at mine. Well, won't that be nice? He talked about death a lot. Well, here he is dead. It happens, it happens to us. Part of what we believe is that it doesn't really. It, yeah, things shut down, I go in the ground. But this promise is past your death. Well, I don't know really if I believe in an afterlife. Well, that's what, I mean, that, all the Sadducee party believe, didn't believe in an afterlife at the time of Jesus' teaching. And the whole passage over in Mark 12 on the left-hand side, they tried to trick him. The Sadducee says, who say there is no resurrection, and they gave him this question to stump him about a guy, who, who, a girl who ended up marrying seven brothers as they sequentially died because she was a black widow of some sort. And uh, no children. And then in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Hard question, right? Because if there's an afterlife, she's going to be married to seven men. And I, I, I picked the Mark passage because I like Jesus, the way he says things in this one. Jesus, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is not this why you were wrong? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, Jesus is talking in real-time terms 
quoting Moses, and this might not help at all, but just, just in case you can't picture, uh, can't picture dates. So we got like this, we got, we'll put Jesus down here, we've got a cross there, that's the cross, a plus sign. Um, so somewhere, uh, here's, here's zero, and here's Moses at 1447, that's the date of the Exodus, B.C. And here is Abraham and, you know, 1877, that's the date of the promise, when he was 75. So, when Moses sees the burning bush before he's sent into Egypt, um, God in the burning bush speaking to him says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so he, Christ is... Um, Christ is referring to that comment. He's saying, at this moment, when Moses was alive, 440 years, 430 years, after he was the God of Abraham, he's still the God of Abraham. Okay, this is a little odd. You say, well, I don't see what the problem is. Of course he is. No, he's saying... That means Abraham's still alive at this point. Still existent. The agent called Abraham. He could not, because God is not the God of the dead. If he's saying he's the God of Abraham here in 1847, he's the God of a living Abraham. And the Sadducees don't believe in life after death. So when Abraham dies back here, he's dead, like an atheist would say. right? An atheist would say, you're dead, you're dead. It's the end of you. Here's now a concept, a memory. We as Christians affirm this promise is twofold. One, that you are forgiven of sins. Second, life eternal. So you need to have a picture of the everlasting. You need to have an idea that says, I'm living, for me to be a child of Abraham, like Abraham looked before him, he longed to see my day, he saw it, and was glad. He's not even claiming Abraham in some ephemeral world of clouds and angels registered it. No, he, he measured it and was glad about it. It also messes with any kind of modern nonsense about timelessness for God. Because if God is timeless, this argument doesn't work. Okay? You cannot, because the Sadducees could come back and say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. God up here, all of this is present for God at all times. And so he can be the God of Abraham in Abraham's life and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac and Jacob without violating them being real to him and in a timeless connection. And Jesus would be quite wrong. The logic of Jesus' argument is, the tense. Is it present tense? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So it messes with that notion. But you, whatever you have is you have a promise ahead of you that you need to look at your life as living into. You're not just living for the promise, believing God in the here and now with a kind of existential you know, integrity. But you're looking forward to the blessed hope. Now that's also, 
the last bit here in the Luke 16 passage. Um, it's the last bit of conversation we have out of Abraham. It's out of a story that Jesus tells. And it's not a, we, we kind of don't think it's a parable because the people are named. Okay, he tells the story of Lazarus, Dives and Lazarus, the rat Lazarus and the rich man. It's the only parable he named somebody in. And it's kind of real. It's not parabolic, if that's a word. Uh, parabolic. Whatever the invented word needs to be. Um, because when the two men die, there's the rich man who had all the, the goods and the poor man who didn't have nothing. And they both die and Lazarus, the poor man, goes off to, to Abraham. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's a story about Abraham that we didn't have in Abraham's life. It might be a real story or a, a, a strong fiction that Christ was telling, but it's about our character and it's about his afterlife. Abraham's bosom is not in Abraham's life, it's in Abraham in Sheol. And Lazarus carried off to be with Abraham. And interestingly, Everybody's dealing with Abraham. No one's dealing with God. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, <coughs> between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you might not be able and none may cross from there to us okay a little bit of cosmological mapping going on there what the nature of Hades is like and he said then I beg you father send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And this is where it lands on you heavily, knowing the end of the story, of Christ's story. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Abraham's last lesson, post-death, if it was real or if it's just fiction, but it's Christ using Abraham's character to tell the story of people who refuse to listen to God, refuse to believe God. So you have, if you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, you're not going to listen to, oh, I don't know, someone who might rise from the dead. I don't know who that might be. But they hadn't listened back in the John passage. Christ is saying the same thing. My word finds no place in you. You won't listen to me, and you won't listen to me after I rise from the dead. He told the Jews he was, he was going to rise from the dead. That's why they put a guard on the tomb. 
And then he rose from the dead, and the guards came and told the Jewish leaders, he rose from the dead. And they said, um, not no, he didn't. They said, don't tell that story. Because it doesn't matter to us what he says. We're not the kind of people to listen to that. So now, for you, in red here at the bottom, do we listen at all to God? Do we? Do we find ourselves measuring this world by God's comments? Now, if I was talking to somebody, it might have been Manisha earlier, or somebody, about uh, Daniel Patchen had said to me the other day that in writing of uh, novels, writing of fiction, unless the author has a, a strong, maybe it was Jesse, I don't know, <coughs> a strong view of the world, a view of the world at all, he can't write compelling fiction because nothing really works. It's all just, it comes out like Harry Potter. And I know that some of you like Harry Potter, but it's crap. Now, it's because J.K. Rowling has no view of the world. And so many moderns don't. You need, you, you will develop a view of the world. You may develop something better than most. You kind of pull one together just being raised by decent parents. But unless you go to God and start believing what he tells you, believing what he said, one, you're not a child of Abraham. You don't get this thing of the promise being carried out to you. And you don't have the faith that will get your sins forgiven and will get you the life eternal. And your life, frankly, won't make a lot of sense. Because you'll be writing some stupid narrative, much like Harry Potter, thinking it works that way. It doesn't work that way. Why do people ruin their lives? They're intelligent. They went to college because they're stupid. Not stupid intellectually, but stupid um, in terms of what is true about this. What is true about that? And we have all sorts of beliefs. And you have to choose whether or not you're going to allow Christ's words to find a place in you. Whether Moses and the prophets meant anything to you at all, because if they didn't, if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe him either. When he says, this is an old, this is not a new religion, basically, he's saying. I was there. I was, and he uses the ego eimi. He uses I am in Greek, not Hebrew. And the Jews know what he means. They knew he was claiming to be Yahweh. Which means when God says, I am that I am, when Christ says, before Abraham was, I am, they knew they needed the rocks that they were carrying. They needed to kill this guy. He was claiming to be God. And that means he was claiming that not only he and his father had this relationship, but he and Abraham had this relationship. He predated Abraham. Before Abraham was, I was Yahweh. So it's not a new connection. Christ is the connection in the ultimate aspect of the promise. We don't just have the Jewish God over here promising Abraham something and the later Christian God over here doing something similar and we try to tie them together theologically. They're the same person. Christ is this God 
who goes back to Abraham in this promise and all faith is resting in how you deal with his word. I'm just too good. I won't even use up the last five minutes. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this beautiful weather for four weeks. Bless our fellowship. In your son's name, amen.